Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Gleason, and this is Unmuted by Mosaic. Hey everyone, today I got to sit down with Micah Renner, a PLNU grad and former Voices of Love leader. We talked about how their queer identity influenced their time here at Point Loma, as well as their transition into post-grad life. So, let's get into the conversation with Micah. Hello everyone, I'm here with Micah Renner, and today we're going to be talking about the post-grad queer experience and just some of the things that you have to navigate um, coming into college, but then also leaving college. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you, and before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're at right now? Yeah, hi, my name is Micah Renner. I graduated from Point Loma in June of 21, so not too long ago. Um, Nowadays, I work for a school district up north um, as a communications person. I also spend a lot of time at Normal Heights United, which is like my church, my family. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good people. and when I'm not there, um, it's very rare that I'm not, but um, I'm usually at the beach or um, doing some sort of writing somewhere. Awesome. So before we dive in kind of to this post-grad realm that I really want to talk about, I also want to touch base with kind of the preliminary experience, like what was your transition like from high school into Point Loma and how did you your queer identity would you identify as like being queer um kind of how was that a part of your transition yeah so I came to Point Loma after kind of finding Christianity and just religion in general um, while I was in basic training and so I was like oh this university is like everything I'm looking for a small school went to a very large high school Um, And so I was excited to be known by people and also kind of share in this, like, common experience of, like, a a shared belief. Um, And when I, right before I came to Point Loma, I was kind of beginning to understand the the denominational differences that can affect how accepting the folks around you are um, of, you know, queer identities and different things. But there was this moment kind of in that, like, I went to Pride in the summer of 2019, Mm -hmm. and it was there that I was like, oh, no, yeah, I'm going to be myself when I go to this place, because I just, I feel as though being more authentic, um, which is kind of just a testament to the queer community, is like, being authentically yourself is is the best way to exist happily in the world. And so I chopped off all my hair, um... Yes, I love that. <laughs> was at the time, like, just loosely... When I came to Point Loma, I joke that I was like a Rachel Maddow. Um, <laughs> I was loosely feminine, but very androgynous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, like, queer question mark. When, like, students would go on tours with their family or on campus on, like, preview days, I would often be working in the commuter lounge, and, like, a parent would come up to me and be like, is my child going to be okay here? And I'd be like, I don't know what you oh. mean. And and they would kind of, it was a pretty common exchange, but someone would say, like, I could tell that you're a part of the community. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Uh. Um, I don't know. I just got here, but thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I transitioned, um, came out as a, a trans man in the fall of 2020. 
So there was a lot of thinking and processing and kind of fear that went into that decision because queer with a question mark is easier than, oh, I am, I am very well known on campus, involved in a lot of different things, mm-hmm. and I'm coming out in this very visible um, kind of unexplored way yeah. because we've, we've made a lot of strides and still have a lot more work to do for all LGBTQ folks on this campus, but especially in terms of gender identity. I had gotten top surgery a couple months after coming out and was kind of being back on campus in the wake of things opening up a bit more with the pandemic. And I was trying to figure out where the the gender neutral bathrooms were on campus and having strange interactions with classmates or professors. So it was an interesting experience of like settling into myself while I was also helping this place settle into who I was. Mm, Yeah. Do you feel like you had the support of professors and peers that already knew who you were from past semesters? Or was that transition pretty difficult in some ways? I would say in some ways it was... It was like new friends who were stepping in, um, kind of in that fall even, as I continued to look very androgynous, um, but decided I wanted to be Chris Hayes instead of Rachel Maddow <laughs> is the, <laughs> the, the description I usually give people. Um, there were folks that were like kind enough to be like, hey, so nice to meet you. These are the pronouns I use. What about you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would often say things like, I don't know, the normal ones, um, because I was just so cagey and defensive about even admitting to myself what I wanted. Um, and so letting people in was an important part of like, oh, there there is some support here. Um, but at the same time, it created a sort of, oh, I need to trust people more. I need to move into that mindset. And it also opened me up to learning that not everyone was going to be able to hold that or be willing to support me in the ways that I needed. So it was a mixed bag. Sometimes I'd be like, oh my gosh, this place is so supportive. I feel so seen and known. And then while my hands were kind of open to those to those good interactions, I'd be harmed by someone who wasn't willing to learn or to be with me during a, right. an intense transition. Yeah. It sounds like throughout your experience at Point Loma, you learned a lot about yourself. Do you feel like there was tension between that desire to express yourself in different ways and being a student here or has it kind of meshed together like I feel free to do this on this campus and around these people I think for a long time the end the the summer of 2020 I was wrestling with this idea of Oh, I'm involved here and here and with this place and these people um, just at, through different groups on campus and in different classes and what have you. And there was this wrestling of like, I just, I truly felt that I should wait until I left. Um, wait until I got out. Wait until I separated myself from all of these people and places and transitioned kind of away from the very public spheres that I was kind of engaged in especially in this place. And there just came like this moment with a couple of, like I was leading Voices of Love Mm -hmm. and sitting with this tension of like, I want these people to know who I am. Um, And so it was a huge risk. I I very much felt like I had to come to terms with the possibility of losing folks, of losing opportunities on campus, of 
navigating tension for people who hadn't done their own work about what what transness means and how they feel about that. And I had to kind of brace myself for the all of those possibilities. And once I did that, I like wouldn't have taken it back. I'm glad that I didn't stop myself from mm-hmm. starting my transition while I was here. But it did open me up to to being very vulnerable and visible in a campus that wasn't ready to really step in to keep me safe. Yeah. I relate, and I know a lot of people on this campus that I've talked to relate to that sentiment of like, oh, I'll wait until I'm off this campus because I, well, I transferred to this school and I remember like in my decision process, I was deciding between this school and then like a big public university. And my main thing that was holding me up about the school is I was like, oh, like, I think I'm queer, but if I go to this school, like, I'm not going to be able to explore that at all, which scared me so much. But I think it's so beautiful that you came in and were like, no, like, I had this experience and I know that this is something that I want and I'm not going to stop myself from exploring that just because I'm in this place. So do you have any advice or words of encouragement for students who might have come in kind of with the mindset that I did of like I'm not really sure that this is a place to explore that part of me I I think retroactively I look back on what my experience has looked like what the the kind of experience of the queer alumni that I know has looked like um, in folks who came out while they're here, in those who waited um, until they graduated. And there's no right answer, unfortunately. Like, I really wish I could yeah. be like, this is the best thing to do. But I do, I do recognize such a lament uh, in the folks who didn't feel safe and in, in many cases weren't safe enough to explore those things while they were here of like, I missed out on that. That was my time to be a college kid and to to be who I was or to love who I wanted to love. And I didn't I didn't get to do that. And I, I think that there is just a sadness that I recognize in them and those folks who didn't get the full experience of being mm-hmm. themselves. I just... I want to almost like uh, in Catcher in the Rye, one of my favorite books. I um, love that book too. It's so good. Yeah. I really, I really love the part when Holden talks about how he imagines all of these kids in a field of rye, um, and there's like this big cliff at the edge, and he just wants to catch the kids before they fall, right? And I kind of, I imagined trying to do that while I was here as a Voices of Love leader, and because I want people to be open to be who they are and I know from personal experience how devastating and unsafe that can be it really requires a level of finding those safe spaces and doing the proactive work to make sure you're in an environment with enough cushion enough support um, whether that's finding other queer students finding truly affirming professors who have done that work and staff who know you just just having people who care so deeply about every aspect of your identity with no caveats or qualms about any part of who you are is the way to go if you're gonna if you're gonna be out and visible because I so want that for any queer student that comes here and I also just 
I want to keep them safe. And I know there's professors and staff and other students who want that for their community. So it requires kind of this like communal care, right, of us all stepping in and finding mm-hmm. each other or else it can become really dangerous and isolating. Yeah. You mentioned Voices of Love. I know you were a former Voices of Love leader. Was it for two years that you were a leader? No, it was, um, I just led it for a year. Okay. Um, I co-led with uh, Claire Sundberg, mm-hmm. um, my best friend. Yeah. Um, She's awesome. Yeah. Claire had done leadership before me for, I think, a whole year. Um, and then I stepped into that with them from the fall of 2020 through graduation in June. Um, and yeah, it was a really great experience. It was a lot of teamwork uh, mm-hmm. to coordinate. They were still in Canada at the time doing Zoom right. classes. And I was on campus kind of off and on commuting here and meeting with students. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a, a really great experience. But it is one of those things that's very odd because you kind of step into to caring for the people that are the closest to the identities that you share. Um, where it's like I would be trying to help someone grapple with their identity or safety plan around the idea of coming out mm-hmm. uh, at the same time that I was doing those things or yeah. reflecting on my own experience of that. And I just hope at some point, like in all of these different spaces where queer people are having to be leaders for each other, that we have enough allies to do the same thing so it doesn't always fall back on the students to do that work. Right, right. In the last podcast episode, we talked about the idea of rest, and one of the things that really struck me was the idea of rest in community, and I wonder if that's something that you relate to or applies to the queer community in general, but also on this campus. Like, how do we support each other in rest and in safety? Um, And it sounds like Voices of Love is a place and you helped create that place as well so i yeah i'm just so grateful for the like literal generations of leaders that came before us that set us up to be able to do that because as much as we were having conversations with folks and having to like write articles to to affirm and support our our right to be here um there was years of that um of folks Mm -hmm. who came before us who had even less support trying to figure out just small ways to claim their divine love and right to exist on this campus and there's like a a double a double-sided sword to that i guess because as voices of love becomes more commonplace as the leaders on this campus become more visible there became a certain level of of danger Mm -hmm. and exhaustion within that too right where then it was it was easier for people on this campus to know who the voices of love leaders were to ask inappropriate questions to put us in uncomfortable situations and to more easily dehumanize us Mm -hmm. because it was it was more evident who we were and it was easy to point to us as kind of a polarization on the campus, you know, right. as we're expanding the the level of I don't know, affirmation folks yeah. are receiving. Would you say that the purpose of Voices of Love or a club like that on this campus is primarily to 
accept and affirm queer students is there any aspect of like educating the campus or is that completely separate that's a great question i i would hope that at some point voices of love can purely be a group dedicated to queer students finding community with each other Mm -hmm. and just enjoying that act of care and embodied love for one another because i don't want every voices of love leader to come into a thing thinking they have to change the university yeah that's very much where i was while i was here i um did a a staff and faculty training with one of the people who helped facilitate voices of love one of the staff members Mm -hmm. and there were several different instances of last year um, around this time when Trans Day of Visibility was something we were kind of recognizing, but there was some pushback because of clubs and different polarized groups on campuses where I was like, okay, let's do a panel. Um, and we had some really great professors and staff talking about how to tri- trans allyship should function. But it required the voices of love leaders to make those questions and to kind of explain how the answers should fall and what the gravity of that conversation means. Right. Because it's it's very philosophical to ask um, what what it means <clears throat> to belong, um, what it means to be cared about in an institution that does violence to queer bodies, just by the very nature of its like limited understanding. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if that philosophy is not practical, like, lives are in danger. And so, yeah, it was an interesting back and forth where at some point I I hope and pray that we get to a space where you can step into Voices of Love leadership just because you want to hang out with other queer people. And maybe yeah. every once in a while facilitate like a, hey, this is how you can think about your safety when you're coming out. Yeah. Or things like that. But you don't carry this weight on your shoulders while you're also just trying to be a student of like how do I move this university right to a better place yeah I think honestly the existence of voices of love the safe community is enough for a leader to take on and I think that's changing the university and the experience of queer students on this campus so Welcome to Beyond Unmuted. This is a segment of the podcast where Sage and I, the producers alongside Sarah, talk about ways you can engage with the topic of the episode beyond the podcast. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about queer-friendly places off campus. We know that Loma can truly feel like a bubble, and sometimes that can feel restricting or claustrophobic. And so we wanted to offer some resources beyond campus, get it, beyond unmuted, um, which are affirming and uplifting. So a great place to start if you're looking for somewhere off campus is the San Diego LGBT Community Center, also known as just the center. This is a great place to receive services such as counseling or to build community or to volunteer if you're wanting to give back. And if you're trying to maybe find a place to eat, there's a new restaurant, LGBTQ owned. It's called Inside Out, and they serve California and Mediterranean dishes, and they also host um, LGBTQ movie nights and other special events. So sounds pretty fun. That sounds super fun. 
And lastly, if you're a person of faith or someone who's interested in going to a church, I cannot recommend Normal Heights United Methodist Church enough. It's a super affirming and inclusive church with a beautiful, diverse community. And a handful of Loma students go there, so you can always find a ride. And I attend every once in a while, so maybe I'll see you there too. Well, these all sound really fun and great places that we should definitely check out and visit sometime. But in the meantime, let's get back to the podcast. See ya. Back to you, Sarah. (laughs) Back to you, Sarah. I know you mentioned some of the challenges that came along with that faculty panel. Are there any other challenges that came along with being a VOL leader or just kind of navigating all of those things on this campus? I think there was a level of I'm trying to say this well. There when you become so open and um, kind of determined to move, to try to move people in a better direction in this kind of like, I'm experiencing some level of injustice by, by the way people talk about my existence as if it doesn't directly impact me. And those conversations like continue to happen while you are existing in the middle of it. Um, There's a level of like dehumanization that occurs and I became kind of a gear in the machine I let myself kind of plug into a space where I was just willing to answer questions for folks those parents that would be on campus Mm -hmm. the professor really understand what my deal was (laughs) during the transition Uh. (laughs) Um, and I, I lost sight of my humanity and I know that that experience is is more common than we we think it is because we're so I think this is why there's so many like trans and queer people who are writers because we spend so much of our life begging for our humanity that we have to figure out how to articulate that well before someone tunes us out or shuts mm-hmm. down and leaves yeah. us on our own. Yeah. I um after that panel that we did had kind of articulated to a staff member what a privilege it is that I am able to articulate myself as well as I am because when you can't do that it can have devastating consequences right um yeah just that level of visibility the the kind of insidious nature with which people would sometimes reach out and and be a friendly face if you will um but kind of have that warp into, I just need to ask questions because I don't understand this yet. Right. Or I'm not going to try to understand this. Um, like while I was going to school here in my last semester, I was attacked by another student. Um, and so it was this kind of understanding of like, I've really lost my humanity at this point. Yeah. This, um, this thing that has like taken place in the midst of me trying to do all this education and trying to be as graceful as possible has like cost me not just an emotional level of safety but like a physical Mm -hmm. way of being embodied in the world and I was so scared that I just wouldn't make it to graduation that I became silent 
right? It was just kind of like, okay, I'll keep leading this club and I'll do these, you know, these educational Zooms with folks to try to do as much as I could to be a catcher in the rye before I got out of here. But I also then graduated and had to grapple with the fact that I didn't feel like a human anymore. That I don't know that I changed the university and that really like what progress can be achieved by those things. Um, And had to at some point come to a place and I'm working on coming to a place where I'm realizing like the individual effort is the is the best that I can do. But how how terrifying is it, right, to look back on that and hope yeah. that it doesn't happen again? Hope that those people that step into leadership aren't in this vulnerable in the same ways. But to also feel really conflicted about how that silence kind of gave that that violence a permissive, you know, role in my experience. Yeah. I'm very, very sorry that that happened to you. Um, that's awful and should not have happened on this campus. Um, yeah. Um, I'm curious if you have any ideas or input on like what it means to refine your humanity if you feel like someone has tried to take it away from you. I think that in the aftermath of what happened and the few people that were let into the knowledge of that experience, there was a lot of conversations around how resilient I was. And I, to this day, kind of loathe that word Mm -hmm. because it presupposes that I can just keep moving forward, that I'm not trying to hold the the shattered pieces of an identity um and that i'm that i am surviving in in a capacity that's acceptable to the person who's crediting me with this um this term i guess and i think being in a church space at normal heights united and kind of trying to let people in again um in finding ways to be guarded but just vulnerable enough to try to find family has been one of the trickiest most frustrating things because like I love these people and it also wasn't that long ago that I was really harmed in a space where all I had come here for aside from an education was a sense of family and community and so I think like on some level the search for like my humanity is is an act of resistance because it's saying like yeah your expectation of resilience actually cost me a whole lot and i have to keep doing that in some capacity but i am also going to name those things and when we talk about like what justice means um for my story for hopefully being preventative and actually stepping in front of harm for queer folks i think it means like an active witnessing right of like this stuff has happened in this place and it never should have been able to happen at all this like institutionally supported violence is the most vile way that we can point to 
the need for the university to hurry up and change, right? Right. And so, yeah, just my hope is that people can realize that their worth is not the work and that they maintain some level of learning how to call community in alongside them of like stepping in and being like, hey, this situation that you're like praising me for surviving was not good. And Mm -hmm. I need us to stop kind of creating a hopeful spin, a redemptive narrative here because the like human layers of that are that it still hurts and it is an active process of healing. And so it just, it requires people being like, yeah, that is awful. I'm not just going to try to put a positive spin on that right now. I'm just going to sit with the tension I feel at having heard this experience. Right. And your resiliency comes at a cost, your safety and your humanity. It's not like this badge of honor that you get to carry. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, I would love to transition a little bit into what it looked like after you graduated. Um, I know you mentioned trying to cultivate this community at Normal Heights. I'm curious if that has been a big part of that move from undergrad to post-grad life. Yeah, I graduated in June and had had gotten my degree in two years. It was a whirlwind of a time. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, I did a, a semester of community college. I came to Point Loma in the fall of 2019 and was out by <laughs> June of 21. And there was a lot that played into into my rush um, towards towards the cap and gown. But then I got there and was like, oh, gosh, the real world is is here, right? I was still, like, reeling with making sense of the experience that I had here, also realizing that I needed to, like, get a job, figure out the apartment situation, um, find out what community and life would look like. And so that was another test of, like, hey, who are you going to call um, to pull into your life right now? And ask for support because you can't do this on your own. You've never done this thing before. Mm-hmm. Um, what does surviving after after college look like? And so I had a really great boss while I was working here who had a lot of those conversations with me in the lead up to graduation. And I had enough people kind of giving me tips and tricks to be like, okay, I'm going to start applying to stuff all over the place. Mm-hmm. But nothing was working out. I was like rolling this boulder up the hill and submitting as many applications as possible every day, but just wouldn't hear back. And then I started doing construction. Uh, I needed a job. Uh, physical labor was like a, a pretty easy thing to jump into with mm-hmm. my, my experience in the military and was feeling very aimless because I was like, is this, is this my vocation? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of like, Hey God, <laughs> what is happening here right now? What's the plan? I um I left to help my friend uh, on the East Coast kind of settle into the school that they were going to be attending in the fall. And as I was leaving, I just remember thinking, like, do, do I have home to come back to? What does that even mean? I I go to this church, but is this church home? Where where are my roots? Um. And so I was just kind of like praying that there would be some sort of answer when I got back and that I could I could find some sort of footing. And so while I was gone, I happened to 
I had done an interview right before I left and got the call while I was on the East Coast that I was going to be working in Oceanside um, as a communication specialist when I got back. And I was like, oh, someone's listening, I hope. <laughs> um, and that also meant, though, that I was like in 40 minutes away from this church I had started going to and began living in Oceanside, trying to figure out what community looked like, what family means uh, in the world. And there were just little moments where this church would just like pull me back in. I'd be like, I don't, I really don't know why I drive 40 minutes here every mm -hmm. Sunday and on a Thursday, occasionally <laughs> on a Tuesday. I was like, that is a lot of driving. What, what's the reason? And it just, these folks without, it's taken a lot of trying to find community in different spaces. And it, it was similar there, but at the same time, these folks were also trying to pull me in as I kind of had one foot out the door. Yeah. So they really became the space that I could like safely land and kind of start to, to regain some of that humanity. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, were there any big changes you experienced being a queer person in the world of post-grad? Like, were you surprised by how people interacted with you differently or was it some of the same highs and lows? To some degree, I, I got into the workforce and I was shocked by how how much more work people have to do in like having their own sense of dignity about trans and queer identities. I would like, I was dead named and misgendered for like the first three months of my like initial employment. Mm -hmm. And this happened in so many different spaces. I would go to like a, a doctor's office for like blood work or something. And yeah. they would be like shouting my dead name out and I'd walk up there and they'd say, sir, we haven't called you yet. It, it happens at restaurants constantly. And when this happened in the workplace and in light of all of these other events um, where I was experiencing this almost daily and people were forgetting the expansive nature of bodies uh, when we talk about like reproductive rights and and things of that kind of nature and people had such a narrow scope it started to open up an understanding for me that it wasn't just point loma mm -hmm. which for a moment was a huge relief because anytime something bad happened to me here people would point the finger back at me and say you chose to go to Point Lomanaz. Yes. It's on you. I have heard that before. <laughs> so many times, yeah. right? We just want to point back to the person and say, if you didn't choose to come here, this wouldn't have happened. You put yourself in that position. Mm -hmm. But when I got out into the world and was receiving the same kind of like bigotry and misunderstanding and was having to do that same type of education, I just wanted to come back to the university and start yelling, it's not just you. It's like, it's the yeah. world, right? Which is in some capacity, like so exhausting. You're like, oh, it's the whole world. Mm -hmm. It is the whole world. And on the other hand, like it, it makes me believe that each of these spaces have an individual capacity for change. Right. Because if it's, if it is the whole world, people can still if they like truly are working from a place of love, right? Like if we're, if, if we're saying we're Wesleyan Christians, um, the whole 
the whole concept of doing no harm and like loving one another means that we're actively working on dismantling institutions that do the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So I just, it gives me some degree of absurd hope in this idea that maybe if there's enough good people in a larger community who aren't just the queer folks who are under this oppression, but just swarms of professors and staff and theologians, pastors who come together and like fully affirm someone's entire humanity mm -hmm. in that like radically loving way that those can be the places that begin to change and like set an example for what that means. Yeah. What does it look like to you maybe for a student, a faculty member, a staff member to be that kind of ally or that kind of support within this community? You know, I I have this kind of banter with Claire where we joke when we see a pride flag or a sticker up, um, you know, of like a Voices of Love thing on a faculty store, like we, they'll, they'll say to me, show your pride. Um, and it's kind of us like digging in at this idea of like, that doesn't mean anything to either of us. Mm -hmm. I had professors who had those stickers and then would ask or present information that completely undermined any sort of respect for queer identity in the context of a class, you know? And just, you can feel your face heat up. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and just yeah. to be so uncomfortable in a place where you're just trying to learn, but all of a sudden you go, oh, I don't belong here. Like this is, how, how am I supposed to defend myself right now, yeah. right? I, I hope that the students and the professors and anyone who kind of falls outside of the scope of the queer community will learn what it means to actively witness these types of ruptures that are happening all of the time where just queer people existing on this campus is radical. Me talking about this experience while it is difficult is is what someone once told me is like a gift to the university, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to be like, oh, here's my gift to you, right? That's like a little yeah. on the nose. But, no, yeah. but me speaking about this thing says silence is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Silence will not save you. Um, we can credit Audre Lorde with that one. But... But it also means that if the queer folks that exist here are brave enough to keep showing up, even just by living and breathing every day, in spite of the institutions and the folks who are actively trying to to eliminate us and to and to force us to conform, it means that instead of asking those queer folks to engage in like a Christian martyrdom of like being attacked and suffering, and in some in some capacities giving up their humanity that means that those allies can't just call themselves that unless they are seeing this cost in its fullness mm -hmm. they're like paying an active witness they are stepping alongside these queer folks doing their own work and figuring out internally 
what what they need to do to decolonize their their minds about about gender and sexuality and working on their dang theology right like Mm -hmm. we've got we all have a lot to unpack sometimes i even will catch myself being like god in this and and defining things in a very narrow narrow narrow-minded scope based on just what i what i let people tell me about god if Christians are going to, and this is like the people within the context of this uh, university are going to do better. It means like educate your dang self, you know, and and step in when you're ready. Don't yeah. prematurely be like, oh, I'm gonna like go ask a queer person for help, and then I'm gonna subjugate them to my misunderstandings, mm-hmm. right? Like, really wrestle with yourself. We can all benefit from examining the ways that our bodies are talked about and the ways our children and the people we care about and all of those kinds of things are addressed in like the larger world and mm-hmm. we talk about like queer like chosen family i even think of like this really awesome like twitter thread from this author julie rogers and she talks about how you have to ask questions of queer people like in your in your own minds not to them but where she says, you know, when people ask, can you love queer people without being fully affirming? Mm-hmm. You're asking the wrong question. Because the things you should be thinking about are, does this person have an emergency contact? Do they have someone they would go on vacation with? Do they have someone to care about them? Mm-hmm. What does their life look like in 10 years? Are they going to be able to exist as themselves? Like, that. those are the questions that are allies need to be internally thinking about when they want to step in and help not just the like i'm gonna put a sticker up but like okay Mm -hmm. if i'm trying to be visibly supportive what does that sticker represent what do i know about this community and in what ways am i able to properly engage in a conversation in and in dialogue that's not harmful yeah i think those examples that you gave like does this person have an emergency contact like where are they going to be in 10 years those are acts of love like those are questions of love and i think that's a great point because oftentimes i think as we've touched on in this conversation the queer experience especially in the church is talked about in a theological like structural way that doesn't include people's individual humanity and i think those questions get to the heart of like this is how i can love you this is how i can support you instead of just like having a sticker saying i support you so yeah like i even think about how like as like in in the gospels as like jesus is like leading up to his you know his death he is comforting people in each of their particularities you know, like he is weeping with folks and he is engaging with them, not by sharing all of the information of what's going to happen to him until the last moment or whatever, but by understanding what each person needs in order to, in order to have some sort of comfort to be able to go on. Right. And I just, I wish we could stop positing queer people as like the the necessary sacrifice for change um and movement but instead be like how can we act as as jesus would and allow queer people to be the kind of disciples out of the spotlight Mm -hmm. you know not to just retroactively be like oh gosh we're really 
we're really pushing them into into the wilderness and into the places that are the most dangerous. How do we do enough thinking and enough work ahead of time that we can be the ones that stand up for them and figure out what each of them need individually? Because we're not a silo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we close out, I would love to talk a little bit about maybe some of your hopes and dreams of what it would look like to feel more supported and to feel more connected, whether it's like a hope that you have for this campus or for your workplace or your personal life or your church community, anything that like, yeah, you think about this and you're like, this is what it means for me to thrive or to be in a community that believes in me and wants to thrive with me. I think there's a sort of like absurd hope required of imagination. Um, I think it was like, it was some saint, I think St. Ignatius <laughs> that like got his leg blown off when he like wanted to, to sign up to like serve, um, you know, in the military and was doing all of this, this work about what like practical theology looks like and like a spiritual imagination in light of trauma and how when we've gone through traumatic things it becomes almost impossible to imagine because the past exists on the same timeline as the present there's like this mm -hmm. rupture that happens and we become like life and death and those like very neat boundaries become blurred and so we have to figure out as like our world blows up how to carry all of it at once and the ability to hope to imagine any sort of good is like the most like awe-inspiring thing I've seen from other people and it's kind of like set a model for me of like oh if people can do this it's not impossible right um even if it's just the concrete the world feels so heavy right now and there's so many bills being lobbied against trans bodies people are acting like this is something new but we've been engaged in sort of a cultural war for for the last three years but really for a very long time and there's this author thomas page mcbee who's a trans memoirist um, and in one of his books he talks about how there's this part of him that he knows cannot be harmed and i like to think of hope in that way it's like this little like small like shell inside of us you know that we're just trying to grow and i think the more we can nurture that hope for each other the more capacity we'll have to to survive this thing. Mm -hmm. Like even if change isn't accomplished within our lifetimes, even if the like the experience of being in this university is difficult for someone, if at some point years down the line it's not as intense because a conversation was had in one of those settings that that eliminates the possibility of that happening in the future there's like some relief in that and as people are doing that work as they're kind of forced to as they take on that mantle because they feel so passionately about it i just hope that there will be more communal care like for for each other for even even the folks that are hostile towards us that will kind of say like hey you know we're all engaged in some sort of absurd common humanity and I don't 
have the right to strip that away from you and you can't do that for me either mm-hmm. um yeah and, that's mutual yeah the healing work i think is that like redemptive we can we can come together and your hope is your hope and your future is just as important to me as mine is to you yeah that's really beautiful thank you so much micah for coming i've been looking forward to this conversation for a while really excited that you got to be here um yeah sweet amazing thank you for having me of course Thank you so much for listening and for supporting us. And another thank you to our guest today, Micah Renner. Y'all, this was our last episode for the semester and the year, but I cannot wait to get back up and running next fall. Until then, take care and stay safe. This podcast would not be made possible without the Office of Multicultural and International Student Services at Point Loma Nazarene University. It was executively produced by Sarah Gleason. It was written and researched by Sage Tabor. The editing and graphics were created by Michaela Norwood. It was recorded by Point Radio at Point Loma Nazarene University.